I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and I'm delighted to welcome to our podcast today, Saskia Popescu. She is an epidemiologist, an infectious disease specialist, and preventionist. She is an expert in biopreparedness based in Phoenix right now at the hospital system in Arizona, and also an adjunct professor at the University of Arizona. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Doctor, you are at what is one of the epicenters right now of COVID-19 in the United States, Arizona. Um, How would you reflect on the arbitrary reopening and the subsequent blowback that states like Arizona and Texas are experiencing now? I think it's extremely frustrating. Um, The hard part is that I understand everybody really wants to get to reopening and move past COVID-19, but the truth is for many states, we never had a first wave. We never saw high case counts. And so it became very relaxed, if you will. And people just thought maybe we won't see what New York experienced and maybe we won't have that happen, which was very optimistic, but ultimately very dangerous in the presumption in terms of well, if we reopen, we'll just do it a little too early and a little too soon. And that's really what we saw across many states, which is very concerning because as we try to push through this pandemic, we have to be patient. We have to be slow in our efforts to make sure we're not overwhelming and stressing healthcare and public health systems. And with the ICU beds in full capacity in states now like Texas and Arizona, and a number of Southern states that had not experienced a peak of first wave, just how much is the healthcare system in Arizona where you're based now paralyzed? We're quite stressed. Um, We've, today I believe we're at about 88% capacity across the state, meaning that we only have about 12% left. And I always really like to stress that hospital indicators like this, hospitalizations and bed capacity, are a lagging indicator. And this means that when we look at that number, it can be really easy to say, well, we're not at 100%, so that's good. But the truth is that this data does have a little bit of a delay to it. And also, once we hit that 100%, we're at the point where there's almost no return. We've let things get so far out of hand that it's really hard to reverse that step. So at 88% capacity really is quite concerning. And this means that our healthcare systems are stressed. Our healthcare workers are exhausted. Resources are going to be tapped out if we keep getting more and more cases and we have to hit a 20% or a 30% surge. So this is something I really worry about. I've seen a lot of kind of thrown around emotions about how hospitalizations don't really mean a lot. The truth is it's extremely important to look at this as an indicator for how your hospital, your state can respond to COVID-19. And with very little wiggle room, we're inching closer to full um, capacity, meaning we don't have any bandwidth for movement in this situation. So, you know, I encourage Arizona as a prime example, Texas, as you mentioned, of course, Many hospitals are having to surge past 100% capacity, but also move patients to other facilities. In Texas, they had to put adult patients in a pediatric hospital. And these are, these are very concerning things that are occurring because we don't want our hospitals to be overwhelmed. 
in Arizona, you know, we never had zero cases. You know, when we reopened, we were still seeing about 500 to 600 COVID-19 cases a day, um, COVID-19 cases a day. And really what this means is that hospitals never really got much of a break. Those ICUs were still busy. They were still experiencing cases. And then when you have this surge, that means we've essentially been working like this since March. And that's extremely concerning. Doctor, would you say that your state was under the illusion or delusion that it was going to be impervious to the kind of havoc wreaked in New York and in the Northeast? And have, have folks been disabused of that at this point? I, I would say folks within the hospital system and then lay, the lay population, the citizens of Arizona. It's tough. I think a lot of people that work in public health and healthcare preparedness, um, we were a little concerned that we were going to see a bigger wave, a bigger spike. And that's always a hard thing to communicate. But my concern was as we started to reopen, so on May 1st, we reopened to elective surgeries. So hospitals started to get busier and more full. And then on the 15th, the stay-at-home orders expired and Governor Ducey just kind of gave the statement of, oh, you know, COVID-19 is still in the community. Be safe, you know, wear a mask. But it was very much like we're, we've conquered this, you know, cases, we've got it under control when really we weren't meeting the gating criteria for reopening. And then within a few days, restaurants were reopening. And I think it really just gave the impression that this was as bad as it was going to get. And for some reason, people have been really focused on seasonality. And there's this weird conception that, or perception that um, <laughs> with the heat in Arizona, we wouldn't experience COVID-19 cases or something like that. So I think all of this combined really gave this public mood of, you know what, it's not that bad here. We're reopening. We really don't have many cases, so it's going to be fine. And I definitely saw a lackadaisical attitude towards social distancing, towards masking, and the seriousness of it all as we reopened. And it, it got worse. And then like clockwork, a few weeks later, we saw drastically increasing case counts. And I'm, I'm still not convinced that the public really understands the seriousness of this based off of some of the comments I've seen at the city council meetings, at some of the anti-mask rallies. So I'm, I'm concerned for sure that the messaging of COVID-19 and the seriousness of Arizona has been very politicized, which can challenge the ability for people to take it seriously or trust the science of what's going on. I think that's so insightful and helpful to realize, even if it's depressing. There was the misperception that community transmission initially in New York, a misperception by the governor and by the mayor of the state and the city that community transmission would mean community transmission in, in a sort of usual flu-like sense. But when we see hospitals buckled under, we know that not to be the case. We know that community transmission is not innocuous. It, it, with this particular disease, given its transmissibility, it is ferocious. Mm -hmm. Very much so. And I, I think one really interesting thing that I have been seeing is, you know, when we were kind of watching New York just go through this horrific experience, there was a lot of focus on healthcare workers and access to PPE and the healthcare worker infections, which is, of course, a huge piece to this. I mean, that's what I do for a living is keep them safe. But 
in some ways that kind of gave the impression to a lot of people elsewhere that that was the source for, for transmission and for high risk in the community wasn't necessarily where it was happening or that, you know, long-term care facilities were a huge risk. So one piece I noticed here, and I've been seeing this really across the country from a lot of the data that's coming out is healthcare worker infections really aren't coming from their patient facing interactions, meaning their, their work. They're really starting to occur out in the communities and even in break rooms where they take off their masks and they become a little bit just more lax about it. And I think that's very telling because our risk perception has such a big piece to how we approach infection control and community mask wearing. So I personally think that's a really good reminder of, you know, there are environments that we think are high risk, but they're so controlled in terms of masks and, you know, PPE in general and, and just infection control measures. And we focus on those and when we think that's high risk, but when we leave them, we forget that the community is actually where the transmission is occurring and you have to be vigilant in those efforts. So it's been a really challenging piece to risk perception and how that impacts people's behavior. In your hospital system and in the state of Arizona, how would you compare the preparedness relative to other medical environments in which you've worked it's tough. I mean, I work at a hospital system that has invested for years in preparedness for biological events. So we were actually looking at this in January, and I'm very fortunate for that. I think it really was impacting for us and helpful. But I think collectively as a state, but also as a nation, we truly don't invest in hospital biopreparedness. And a lot of this is because it's expensive. There's a lot of competing interests and there's really no direct mandate to do it. It's actually not a regulatory requirement that hospitals invest in a certain amount of preparedness for a biological event, whether that's an act of bioterrorism or a, a pandemic or something like Ebola. I mean, the expectation is you have policies and you have general emergency preparedness protocols and, and you know, guidance, but Ultimately, what does that mean and how is that ruled out? So, you know, one thing that a lot of my research and my work focuses on is if hospitals aren't forced to invest in biopreparedness, you know, that means they're quite vulnerable. So how do we address that? So right now in the United States, you know, as a product of really Ebola in 2014, we invested in special pathogens hospitals. So you had a tiered approach, acknowledging that there is no way every single hospital in the US would be able to prepare for something as resource intensive and as exhaustive as something like Ebola. So they built a tiered approach where you'd have treatment hospitals, regional treatment hospitals and assessment hospitals. And then the expectation was that frontline hospitals, meaning everybody pretty much, about 99% of hospitals, had to be prepared to just identify, isolate, and then transfer a patient after 12 to 24 hours if they had a special pathogen like Ebola or SARS-CoV-1. So unfortunately, the funding for that outside of the 10 regional hospitals that uh, have the capacity for special pathogens expired in March and April. So we've not only um, lost funding for this, you know, neglected it really, but there's a systematic you know, vulnerability for hospital preparedness for these events. And we're really seeing that with COVID-19 because it's not just the PPE. It's not just that hospitals were overrun really quickly, but it's how we approach preparedness in general and opting to invest in something that you might not see a return on that investment, but it's going to make a huge difference when these events occur. It's healthcare infrastructure in every sense. 
and you're acknowledging the hard truth of America, which is up until this moment, and even in spite of the pandemic, there was not a major legislation uh, at the federal level or enough at state levels to carry forward the kind of innovative and consistent funding that, that you're describing. Um, in public health circles, even though there has not been action from the federal government proportional to the crisis or to the potential for hundreds of thousands of deaths just from COVID alone, is there any hopefulness you have that perhaps in a future administration, there will be a new deal to address the systemic issues that you have tackled? I'm, I'm hopeful. I think everybody is experiencing COVID-19 right now. You know, what we saw in 2014 with Ebola was very isolated. It didn't impact people in their homes. This is literally impacting every single person in America. And I'm very hopeful that it will mean leaders in the future have to address it. And not just in hospitals, but our continued undervaluing and underinvestment in public health and biodefense. You know, six, since um, 20, um, yeah, 2001, actually, since the Amerithrax attacks, we've invested $60 billion in biodefense, more now. And the Ebola event in 2014 showed us we weren't ready. And this definitely showed us we weren't ready. So I'm, I'm really hoping that the impact to every single person will mean we'll call for leadership that wants to invest in these efforts and be proactive in global health security and also U.S. readiness. But I think all of us really have to decide that that's something worth prioritizing and not just in times of emergencies, because that's what we always do. We like to throw a lot of money and a lot of resources when we're experiencing a crisis. But when that has resolved, we just kind of let it fall to the wayside. And that's where we're at. I mean, public health departments and labs are still using fax machines to send information. And if that's not telling of the kind of investment we're giving them in innovative approaches to maintaining public health, I mean, I don't know what is. I think you're pointing out that there was an emphasis on biologic too in bioterrorism that really underestimated the greater likelihood for the next pandemic, an uncontrollable event with no therapeutic, with no vaccine, with no recourse, to be an event from the natural world in a globalized society where air traffic is so many times multiplied where it was with SARS. Uh, and of course, you know, two decades before that. So, there, there was sort of a misconception, wasn't there, about what biopreparedness ought to mean. Of course, you have to consider the idea that a terrorist organization would get its hand on a, a biologic weapon, but um, the, the free-flowing transmission of a new pathogen, in retrospect, seemed to be a much more significant threat. Definitely. And I think the, the misnomer, you know, as you mentioned, when we talk biodefense or global health security, people think that means bioterrorism. And it really is saying there is a spectrum of biological threats. Intentional, 
whether that is a biocrime or bioterrorism, accidental, like a laboratory failure or a biosafety failure, and then natural, which is really the, the biggest threat consistently. And that is exactly what we're seeing with COVID-19, with Ebola in 2014. And that for some reason, we're really struggling to acknowledge that we're very reliant on critical infrastructure and we assume that they'll be ready for things, but something natural was bound to happen. We were quite frankly overdue for a pandemic. If you look at um, the frequencies of them and you know, growing global globalization and emerging infectious diseases. So it's always really interesting to me where we tend to focus biodefense conversations, at least on bioterrorism, but collectively, and mo most people in the community will tell you it's the natural ones that we're most worried about because that has the greater likelihood. And that's what we're seeing right now, which is so frustrating because global health security, essentially, if you, if you look at preparing for an event, preparing for an act of bioterrorism is really investing in the same things we need right now, right? Public health, healthcare, um, labs, and in every simulation I've been, every tabletop exercise, whether it was a pandemic or an act of bioterrorism, we, we simulated these events and we always assumed things would work, like labs. We never thought we would have the issue that we're experiencing with labs right now. And that is such a telling aspect of this pandemic. And frankly, some of the assumptions we've always kind of made that we would just have highly functioning lab capacity. And we knew things like supplies and communication would be a challenge. But I think this has been such a shock to our systems and how we approach bio-readiness. And I'm, I'm hoping it means people understand biodefense is not just isolated to nefarious purposes, but very much natural events. And how difficult is it to reconcile the American failures with successes in several countries around the world um, that are in some cases diverse and uh, in some cases more homogeneous in, in their population. Um, but if you look at the examples of other countries, they have followed the science and the, had, had so much more cultural respect and literacy for that science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's been particularly heartbreaking in some ways and frustrating because you know we we love to think that in the US with all of the amazing resources and intelligence and, and talent we have here that we would be more equipped for this situation. And we've known about some of our vulnerabilities, but I honestly never thought that we would see the politicization of public health and science the way we have right now. Um, it's it's been really frustrating, especially working on the front lines to see that people are making masks a political issue. And I think you know, when we look at other countries, like New Zealand is a great example, where there is a, a trust in the science and the ability for leaders to communicate that science and that public health data, that's huge. And in the U.S., we're really seeing the implications of one that doesn't exist. When data is politicized, when public health leaders are not given clear access to media and to press, that's really concerning. So there's a lot of aspects of this that I'm, I'm really hoping we learn from, but that have just been so heartbreaking to watch because I know we can do better than that. Do you attribute it more to deficiencies or mistrust in the medical system or the educational system in the United States? 
Um, that's a tough question. I think, I think there's deficiencies across everywhere. I, I mean, collectively, we have some systemic issues in medicine. Access to care is huge. Harm communication. So that impacts trust and transparency. I am hoping that we do more education in schools in terms of science and critical thinking and asking questions, you know, not getting your information from social media, but asking important questions of the information that's being shared with you. But I also think that when you have political leaders, whether it's at a national or local level, that, you know, really push back on public health information and maybe guide it in the direction that they choose or run counter to the guidance that's being given, that creates distrust and transparency issues. So whatever potential deficiencies existed in the community in terms of science literacy, that lack of science communication really has serious implications. I suppose when I ask about the medical system, I mean patients' perception of hospitals or insurance companies or the the darker side of the industry um, or even the lack of interfacing with doctors that they trust. Um, I don't know if that plays a factor in um, growing the resentment as well as the systemic illiteracy of people not being educated and not getting the strategic advice and the vaccinations and understanding the facts. Uh, but I just wonder if you think that that other layer factors into, into it too. The disparities in care, the um, issues that have been uh, unheeded or uncorrected in the way that Americans interface with doctors or their healthcare system? I definitely think there is an, a piece to that that is very impactful right now. You know, when we talk about trust, a lot of that is in how we communicate with patients. You know, we saw some issues in New Mexico with a hospital that was pretty much racially profiling based for risk and would test people based off of if they looked Native American because they knew that there was um, an outbreak in the Navajo Nation. And things like that are so impacting to healthcare and to public health that you can't, you know, you can't even argue with why people might not trust it. So there's that piece. But I think how we communicate with patients about behaviors is so, so old and antiquated. How we approach harm reduction, you know, whether it is stigmatized behavior that they're communicating really poorly or assumptions of certain. Um, Behaviors or even medical issues based off of socioeconomic status. There's uh, there's so many issues with how we approach it is really what I'm saying. And that's in addition to social inequalities and disparities that access to care is a problem. But also, you know, we're seeing that people don't want to go to the hospital because they're scared of the medical bills. And rightfully so. I mean, they can be, you know, put people into debt, as we've seen time and time again. So those pieces, I think, are systemic that existed well before this outbreak. And unfortunately, it's just really highlighting some of these very core foundational problems we have in medicine. And they're not new. They're quite old, actually. And we really need to start looking at this. There's been a lot of good research about the importance of science communication and harm reduction, how shame doesn't work. And even if you just take that simple idea, we really need to start a 
you know, applying it to how we're talking to communities about something like COVID-19. And just as you are encountering this peak crisis in Arizona, for those listeners out there who are informed of the crisis, who are taking the precautions with mask wearing and quarantining at home as much as humanly possible, what do you want to impart to them as a doctor on the front lines and as someone who is expert in infectious diseases? I would say that it's so important to protect yourself and those around you right now. Even if you're in a state that maybe isn't seeing surging cases like we are in Arizona or Florida, we all have a really important role and a social responsibility to keep each other safe. And while America really, really prioritizes our individualism, which is awesome, right now is the time that we need to all chip in. And part of that is wearing your mask when you go out. It's a very temporary inconvenience. But the more we push back and make it a political issue or, you know, refuse to stay home or not, you know, visit a busy bar or restaurant simply because we're tired of COVID-19, that's not going to change it. That's actually just going to make it worse. So now is the time that we need to rally and invest in public health and healthcare and all chip in so that we can hopefully reduce these numbers and move past COVID-19 because these these cycles will happen if we don't learn from our mistakes. Saskia Papescu, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me.